Thank you for listening to Liberty Christian Center's podcast. Let's join guest minister Rob Hunt for today's message. And amen. Long time ago, about the time when Rome ruled the world and the streets of Jerusalem was walked by Jesus himself, there existed on the other side of the known world a large remote island inhabited by an indigenous breed of ruthless pagan savages. Very interesting. Although historical accounts of these barbarians differ from source to source, a common thread found in their description was their primitively deplorable lifestyle and their aversion towards extreme pagan practices, including their extensive practice of human sacrifice, cannibalism, infanticide, sexual deviation, and occultic magic. Then one day, again, as several varied historical accounts submit, only several years after the ascension of Jesus now, a boatload full of Christian missionaries landed on the shores of this particular island. Among them were several of the contemporaries of Jesus himself, as legend would have it. And this was to be the final landing place of their missionary work, bringing the gospel to these people. Isn't it amazing what the gospel can do, amen? By the way, this particular distant island was known at the time as Britain, later to be known as England. So this is an this is a, a example of God's gospel going forth to a people and transforming. God's gospel can do that, amen? The gospel of Jesus Christ has the ability to transform our lives in a radical way to bring people around and to, to bring them to places that they never thought that they could be. Hallelujah. <clears throat> Charles Spurgeon quoted this. He said, preaching that leaves out the cross is the laughingstock of hell. The last several times that I've preached, I've preached on how foolish it is to think that we could have righteousness outside of God, apart from the cross, apart from what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross for us. Now, we cannot have righteousness in ourselves. This is something that Paul brought up this morning. It's like filthy rags. We try and do it ourselves. We try and accomplish it through the works and the efforts of the law, it can't be done, especially the way that Jesus taught it. Remember the way that Jesus taught it is that, well, first of all, how many of you are righteous enough to where you keep the law the way that Jesus taught it, to the extent that Jesus taught it? If that's you, raise your stub. <laughs> I mean, you know, he, he taught... If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off and throw it away from you. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, throw it away. You've got to forsake all and follow. If you haven't done all the things exactly the way that Jesus taught, and by the way, he wasn't speaking in hyperbole. He wasn't speaking in uh, figures of speech. You know, we can't just go through the sayings of Jesus and say, well, I could do it, so I'm going to keep that and Oh, no, that's too tough. I'm just going to mark that as figure of speech, hyperbole, and move on. You know, 
we can't do that. Jesus was absolutely serious about everything that he ever said. But he was talking about if you, this is how he, he presented the law. See, when he came on the scene, the law, people had lowered the law, the standard of the law, to a place where they thought that they could keep it. If I just mind my P's and Q's, if I do, if I do good, if I don't kill, if I don't commit adultery, pretty easy. Jesus comes along, he raises it right back up to that level, says you don't have to pull the trigger or unzip your pants before those things happen. If you just lusted after a woman, you're an adulterer. If you've hated your brother, you're a murderer. And so by the standard that Jesus taught the law, we're not able to attain righteousness through that. And I think it's important that we see that, that, that we are in a perpetual state of not being able to attain righteousness through the law, a perpetual state of sin, if you would have it. Not the ability to sin, but we are currently in sin and cannot, cannot break free from that aside from Jesus Christ. We need Jesus Christ in our life. There's no hope outside of that. <clears throat> See, the problem with the law, the law is just and the law is good. I'm not anti-law. Please don't misunderstand me. The problem is it, it, it doesn't make us just or good. It does just the opposite. Another problem with it is you could know it backwards and forwards and still be miles away from God. Look at the Pharisees. I mean, the Pharisees, they knew it they knew the law backwards, forwards. They knew it in Greek, in Hebrew, Spanish, Pig Latin, you name it. They knew all of it. And yet they wouldn't know the Son of God if he came along and they were crucifying him on a tree. Knowing the law is not enough. It doesn't bring you into a relationship of relying on him for every single thing that we have. And that's what the gospel is about. We have all things through Christ, not through our own efforts. Amen. Pig Latin, let me see. Alde, Alche, Atne. See, when you become a Christian, you have to lay down your ability to earn your right standing with God by human efforts. Jesus Christ alone must be your only source of righteousness. Let me give you four benefits of knowing you are currently in sin and receiving God's grace. What I mean is, we're going to get to this further. I'm not saying that you're currently in sin if you're in Christ, but what I'm saying is that you currently do not have the ability to gain righteousness through the works of the law. Let me give you four benefits of knowing that. Of knowing that even if you're Ma Teresa, your sins are still just as bad as, you name it, Adolf Hitler. Same, name the worst person that you could think of. Okay? 
Four benefits of knowing you're currently not able to receive righteousness outside of God's grace. Number one, love becomes effortless. You lose track of the faults of others when you humbly realize your own need for God's grace. I mean, really, how can you throw a stone at somebody else when you see plainly that you yourself deserve that same stone? How could you point a finger at somebody when you know that you should be pointing the finger at, at, at yourself in the same way? See, loving and forgiving, walking in love with each other is so easy when you know how much you have been loved and you have been forgiven. And it's impossible to do that until you realize how much you have been loved and you have been forgiven. Amen? I think about all of the parables that Jesus gave concerning money and many of the places where he, he taught these parables concerning money, a lot of it related to forgiveness. A lot of it related to the debt of sin that we had that we could not pay. And he says, I want you to give an account of it. What have you done with the money that I gave you, the mercy that I gave you? Did you hoard it? Or did you go out and sow it? Did you give out forgiveness and love freely even as I have given you? So that's benefit number one, love becomes effortless. Benefit number two, faith becomes effortless. When you realize that every blessing comes from God's grace through Christ's blood, and not your abilities and efforts to perform, you lose the source of doubt and fear. I mean, think about it. When, you, when there's all this pressure, and you're thinking, boy, you know, if I could just move that mountain, it's all dependent on me and on my faith. When you realize, that, hey, I need to rely on God's mercy and grace just as much in this area of my life as in every other area of my life. God's love for me is that he who spared not his own son, how will he not also freely give me all things? And you rest in assurance rather than in, in fear and doubt of yourself because you're not looking at yourself. Yourself is already a foregone conclusion. It's no good. I need God. And when you pray, you realize that when my prayers reach the Father's throne, he doesn't look at me and my sins and answer me according to those. He looks at Jesus instead. He looks at Jesus and sees his perfection and answers me according to that. Because that's where we stand if we are in Christ. Benefit number three, suffering and trials becomes effortless. Looking at what you deserve versus what you have been given, how can you ever doubt God's love for you again? It's by his grace that we have anything, and yet he has given us everything. When you realize what we deserve, when you realize the extent of, of what he forgave us, Anything short of hellfire is something to be thankful for. 
Amen? I mean, can we see the big picture here? Just that we have air to breathe. Just that we have another chance. And let me tell you something about suffering. Because the, the, I, I truly believe that the apostles that went before us, that their view on suffering... It's quite a different thing than, uh, <clears throat> well, it's, it's quite a different thing than, than we've, we've made it out to be. First off, I, I don't think that the apostles, I don't see anywhere in the Bible, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't see anywhere in the Bible where it says that the apostles viewed their suffering as though it were suffering. Because when you have such a revelation of what Christ has done, of his forgiveness, of his mercy in our lives, then you're thankful for every breath that you have, and you willingly give it away. See, that's, that's the way sin works. It's not that we have to do this, or else we are condemned and we are cursed. It's we are set free from that condemnation, and therefore we're free to be righteous, it's a fruit. It's not a now do or be condemned. It's a fruit that comes forth from the Spirit. And you see, suffering is the same way. They're not going around going, oh, I'm just a man of constant sorrows. I just, I'm going along in life, and that serpent, he wrapped these chains around my neck. And I've got this sickness and disease on all sides of me, poverty. Someday I'll be with Jesus, but until then we suffer. Oh, we suffer. We suffer. It's just our lot. You know, I don't see that attitude in the apostles at all. I don't know about you, but I, it's not there. <laughs> they, they looked at suffering as something that was a privilege even. They counted it all joy. This is not something that we're going around saying, oh boy, first off, I mean, can we, can we go off on a rabbit trail here? I, uh, I know that this is an HNS, this is a whole nother sermon, but uh, I just want to go off on this rabbit trail just for a, a short moment here about suffering here. Because grace Grace will set your perspective free. It'll cause you to look at things the right way. Grace can transform you that way. Okay? So that instead of looking at, at, at the things that we go through, instead of looking at the things in this life uh, in, a, in a wrong way, instead we're thankful. And we're, we're so grateful at everything that God has done for us that it, it just bubbles over out of cheerfulness. We give cheerfully. So let me talk to you about three types, of, uh, three types of godly suffering, three types of ungodly suffering. First of all, not every type of suffering is godly suffering. Did you know that? So as we go through the trials and we're saying, oh, it's just our love. We're suffering for Jesus. This cold I have, this sickness, all this poverty. 
Not all suffering is godly suffering. Let me give you three examples of ungodly suffering. And I'll follow that up with three examples of godly suffering. Suffering for sin's sake is not godly suffering. Suffering for sickness' sake, that's not godly suffering. And suffering for poverty's sake, that is not godly suffering. In fact, Christ died to set us free from those things. And if you believe that all suffering is godly suffering, I want to set you free from that today because it's not. We have the victory over those things in Jesus' name. Now let me give you three examples of godly suffering. And I know that, I know that there's things that are hard. There's times to grieve. And we don't necessarily have all the answers. But I tell you what, Godly suffering produces fruit. Amen? Three types of godly suffering. Number one is suffering for righteousness' sake. And I'm talking about the righteousness, the right kind of righteousness that comes from the blood of Jesus Christ setting us up to, lifting us up to that level of righteousness. Some of the biggest religious demons will rear their head over the, the true gospel of Christ that preaches who you are in Christ and the true righteousness that comes only from him. Second form of godly suffering is a second example of godly suffering. This is not exhaustive, by the way. I'm just giving you examples. Second example is suffering for giving's sake. Suffering for the sake of giving, like Wayne Myers. Gave it all away. <laughs> Empty out his pockets. You know, how many know? Uh, it, it could be a little bit tough when you give and you watch that offering plate go by and you're like, oh man, how am I going to pay that bill? I just forgot about <laughs> There's suffering. Notice that, that the attitude is different. Third example is suffering for serving's sake. Isn't that what every apostle did? They went out, they sacrificed themselves, and they said, here I am to the world. I, I am the servant of Christ. And they, you know, they went to no end of showing how willing that they were to serve. Paul, the apostle Paul, how much did that guy go through? He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was uh, left for dead. Stoned a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I mean, stoning was the death penalty back then. It's basically like saying, yeah, I went to the electric chair twice, you know, <laughs> and, and somehow I, I managed to survive, praise God, you know. This guy, and the thing is, this guy wasn't saying it to, to say, oh, poor me, give me some sympathy. It's so hard. I just wish that, you know. He was saying it in a way that was like, you know, I, I shouldn't even be saying this. I'm only saying it because there was, see, these false prophets had infiltrated amongst the ranks, and he was saying it because they, they were going off of merit. And he says, you guys want to go off of merit? You want to play that game? 
I got this much. You got this. How much? What you got, fool? You know, I'm, I'm way better. You know, if you want to compare. And then at the end of that, he goes, but it ain't about merit anyway. It's about the spirit of God and the power of God. And that's there at the, look at it, examine it. Where do you see the power of God? Is it in the preaching of the law, the efforts of the flesh that these guys are doing? Or is it in the efforts of, is it in God's grace, God's efforts that he put on the cross to give all of that to you freely? That's where the power is. That's where the spirit of God is coming mightily and, and, and working and performing Bring in the miracles and the power that will change your life. Amen? Amen. And notice how the three examples of godly suffering and ungodly suffering, that in a lot of ways, they're kind of the same thing. If you put them up next to each other, suffering for sin, suffering for righteousness, either one could be bad. Suffering for giving, suffering for poverty, either way, you're pulling out your pockets and going, huh? Suffering for serving, suffering for sickness, either way, it could be kind of hard on you, rough on you. The difference is the attitude, okay? The difference is the fruit. The difference is God coming along in his grace, transforming your life and changing you into a person where you're saying, it's now fruit. It's not, some, it's not the curse. I've been set free from that. And now the things that I go through, I use them for God in his glory and everything that he's doing. Amen. So I'm on number three. Suffering and trials become effortless. Of the four benefits of of knowing that you're currently not able to attain righteousness apart from God. Number four. Number four is life in the spirit becomes a reality. Because you're able to let go of the law of sin and death and old works and embrace the new creation that you are in Christ, abiding in the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's what walking in the spirit is about. Now, I'm glad that we've established this, that you cannot be righteous by the law, by the works of the law. You need God. But if I brought you to that place and left you there, <laughs> I'm doing you a disservice. I'm only telling you half the story because it's not my goal. The point of what I'm saying is not to show you how unrighteous and unworthy you are. My goal is to show you how righteous and worthy God has made you through the blood of his son. Can we talk about that for a while? Can I bring you to that place? Because God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. He's raised us up and seated us. We're we're seated together with him in heavenly places. He who knew no sin, he became sin for us. On the tree, he took that sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Joseph Prince said that we need to get past the place where we think that forgiveness of sins is an elementary basic teaching in Christianity because it's not. If it was just a simple, basic elementary teaching that goes without saying that everybody has, 
then why are there so many Christians that are still living heaped in condemnation, in guilt, believing that God is angry at them, seeing God as a, as a God of, of lightning bolt? You see, we have, we have schizophrenic Christianity. <laughs> a lot of people believe that, well, Sometimes God is happy with me, sometimes he's angry with me. Sometimes God blesses me, and sometimes he curses me. Sometimes he gives me health and wealth, and sometimes he sends poverty and sickness my way to teach me a lesson. And you ask him, when are those times that he, he's happy with you? Well, when I do good. Well, what, are, what about the times when he curses you and... and zaps you with the lightning bolt, so to speak. Well, when I don't do good, when I do bad. Don't you see that that right there is the system, it's called the system of the law. If, if I could put it any other way, I would. It's called the system of the law. The system of the law is do good and you will get good. Do bad, and you will be cursed. You will get bad. Now, if that was the perfect way, if God was content with that, he would have never sent his son. There'd be no need to. If we could gain righteousness through that, then Christ's, Christ's death was, was pointless. Paul himself said it, put it that way. He says, and Christ died for nothing. If you could gain righteousness through the works of the law, through minding your thou shalt nots, then Christ's death was pointless. <clears throat> See, what we get when we adhere to and cling to the law. The system of do good, get good, do bad, get bad. God wasn't satisfied with that system because we always got bad. We always ended up with the curse. None of us could be righteous. It's all filthy rags. And he says, I want... I want a system where your sins will be remembered no more, where they're blotted out forever. Forgiveness of sins for good, where it's no longer brought into remembrance because it's not by your deeds. It's because Christ fulfilled the law for us. One thing that's important to understand, through Christ, it's as if you kept the law. All of the blessings of, of Abraham, you see, God spelled out all of these blessings in the book of Deuteronomy, where he says, if you do the law, you will be blessed, your crops will, will be uh, just bumper crops, I'll rebuke the devourer, your children will grow up and be healthy, wealthy, and wise. 
Everything that you do, will, you touch, it will turn to gold. You'll be successful in all your ways. That's what you do if you, if you keep the law. That's what will happen to you. But if you don't keep the law, bad things will happen to you. The locusts will come. They'll eat it all. The devour, the, the cap, you know, uh, enemies will come and carry off your family in captivity. Nothing but bad, nothing but curse will come upon you if you don't keep the law. That's justice right there. That's the law. That's the system of the law. Do good, you will get good. Do bad, you will get bad. And Jesus came along and he fulfilled that for us. He fulfilled the law so that through him, all of the blessings of God, all of those blessings of keeping the law, all of the favor of God, we have through the person of Jesus Christ. Because like I said, God doesn't look at our sins when he looks at us. He doesn't see them. They're forgotten. They're underneath the blood of Jesus Christ. What he sees is the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, in your place. The full wrath, the full curse of our sin was poured out on Christ on the cross. And if there's any left for us, then his work wasn't finished. But his work was finished. It was done. The devil is completely defeated. Sin is completely defeated. You can't get any more defeated than 100% defeated. His victory was complete. Amen. Praise the Lord. We need to live by that. Did Christ die for our sins or not? Did he take all the con condemnation upon himself or not? Then why are we living in ways where if we do something bad, we walk around in condemnation? Where if we're not able to, to meet up to what we thought was good, we haven't chopped off our hand and thrown it away from us, that we walk around in condemnation, waiting for that lightning bolt to come out of the sky. God's love for you is so great. That's what he sees you as, is with the perfection of his son. And every blessing, every favor from God comes to you because of the person of Jesus Christ. Not because of what you've done. See, I used to think that uh, I used to think that the way Christianity worked is you try really hard to obey the law, and you get only so far, and then grace makes up the rest. Right? I, I used to think that. That's pretty makes sense, right? But no, that's not the way it is. In fact, that's one of the things that that. The Apostle Paul preached the, hev the most heavily against was mixture of those things. It's all Christ. Our righteousness is all 100% completely through the grace of God. If it wasn't so, if there was even a little bit of righteousness that we could attain on our own, through our own fleshly efforts then Christ's death was in vain. 
Turn to uh, Colossians chapter 2. In verse 11. <clears throat> now see, I think of uh, I think of a courtroom here whenever I hear the term the accuser of the brethren. You know that's what the devil is. He's the, it calls him the accuser of the brethren. He's the one that stands there. It's, it's almost as if there's a court scene, you know. There's Matlock over there in the corner. Or who's... That was a while ago, wasn't it? When I think of a, a newer example that's a little bit... Perry Mason, that was even longer ago. <laughs> what happened to all the good lawyer shows, huh? <laughs> but you've got, you've got the, the judge up there. He's got the gavel, and uh, you've got the prosecuting attorney. You know, the prosecuting attorney doesn't make up his own laws. He doesn't make, just make them up off of a whim. He goes off of the established law. Did you know that that's the way that the devil accuses you? His biggest tool in your life is, again, taking something that, that was meant for good, the law, and he uses it against you because he knows that you cannot keep it. That's where condemnation comes from, is through the law. And that's why Jesus had to come and destroy it. Look at there, destroy the, uh, the, the enmity that was against us through the law. Colossians chapter 2. I'll start there at 13. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that is against us. What does that mean, handwriting of ordinances that is against us? That's the law. The law is the handwriting of ordinances as Moses wrote them down. And they are, notice it says they're contrary to us. They're against us. These things condemn us. These are the things that stand there and point at us and say, condemnation, guilt. It says, which was contrary to us, it says he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. See, this, the power of Satan was destroyed by the work that Jesus did on the cross and his power to bring condemnation into our lives through the law. It says he not only destroyed them, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. So as he sits there as the accuser of the brethren, day and night trying to accuse you before God, you need to understand something. Did you know that the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ never does it say that they will ever do anything on your behalf other than advocacy to the Father? They are your advocates. They are not sitting there going, oh yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Yep. Let's bring some conviction. Let's teach him a lesson, huh? 
What do you say? The Holy Spirit is your advocate. Jesus Christ is your mediator, your high priest, your intercessor to the Father. He goes on your behalf, stands on your behalf before the Father, making intercession for you, showing to the world, saying, you know what? You could take your accusation, and I'll tell you what you could do with it. Just drop kick it out of here, because it's my blood that paid for his righteousness. It's my blood that the Father sees. It's my blood through which all spiritual blessings are poured out upon him. Amen? Amen. That's good stuff. That'll set you free. Hallelujah. If you could grab a hold of this stuff, it'll set you free and cause you to walk in ways that you've never walked before. It'll set you free from things that you've been struggling for years with to overcome. When you realize that, hey, I'm telling you, the chains drop off. They melt off. Chains will drop away. Forgiveness will, I mean, unforgiveness will just evaporate into thin air. When you realize the love that the Father has for you and what great lengths he's gone to make sure that you stand accepted in the beloved. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. I got one more scripture here. <clears throat> I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9. I may even throw in one more scripture after that. We'll see. <laughs> <clears throat> And I'm going in the New King James Version here. <clears throat> See, instead of taking God's freely, freely given, unmerited favor and grace, why do we cling to the, to the efforts of the law in trying to make ourselves right before God? And then walk around in condemnation because of it. We're clinging to the ministry of death. How can you call it the ministry of death? Well, I didn't call it that. The Apostle Paul did. 2 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter, which is the law, the efforts of the flesh, to be righteous before God, that kills. But the Spirit, the Spirit of grace through Christ Jesus gives life. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was fading away or passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation, again, it calls it the ministry of condemnation, the law, if it had glory, then the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Hallelujah. We've got the better covenant, amen? We've got the better ministry. 
There was a ministry of condemnation that came, and now we have the ministry of life, the ministry of righteousness. Back to verse 7 there. But if the ministry of death, there's that term, he calls it the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones. Well, I think, you know, some people might say, well, the ministry of death, I think that was just uh, the law in general, the whole law, talking about sacrifice and No, he says, written and engraved on stones. What was written and engraved on stones? The Ten Commandments. Specifically, the thou shalt nots. The efforts through the flesh to be righteousness. He says, if those, the ministry of death written and engraved on stones, if it had some glory, if God's grace was in on that and some people were able to, to, to thrive on that, how much... How much more now that Christ's blood has been shed and we have complete forgiveness of sins, no longer the the blood of goats and rams, sin offerings that could only temporarily cover up those things, but this is the blood of the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who covered our sins once and for all. How much more now that we're under that ministry Do we have God's blessings? Do we have God's forgiveness? Do we have something that we could truly cling to? Amen? Thank you for listening to Liberty Christian Center's podcast. To partner with this ministry or for any additional information, please visit libertychristiancenter.org.